Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. We are focusing right now on the, in the podcast on the issue of change, transition, managing ourselves through that, and managing others through it as well. Last week, I spoke about when change happens to you and how you can apply personally the insights you know about leading others through change and make a difference in how you're responding to change when it's thrust upon you. Now, today we pick up another theme that I actually mentioned last week and promised to do the entire podcast this week on, and that is the issue of change, transition, and the grief process. Change always produces a sense of loss. Now, people respond to change by going through transition, and transition is defined as the spiritual, emotional, and psychological adjustments people make to accommodate or to implement a change. Now, a part of that transition process is what is often called the grief process. Now, leaders, especially pastors, know a lot about managing people through grief as a part of loss, but usually only in the context of bereavement. But those same principles or those same patterns apply when you're leading people through losses that come from other sources besides just death. When a person experiences death, the family goes through bereavement, and we know that bereavement, that major transition in response to the change that's been thrust upon them of the death of a loved one, that bereavement process involves grief. When an organizational change happens, or when a cultural change happens, or when change is thrust upon you from any source, really, it throws you into transition, which is the spiritual, emotional, and psychological adjustment you have to make to the change. And a part of that is living through the grief process of grieving what has been lost through the change and coming through to a place of accommodation or adjustment and moving on to what we might call a new normal. Now, when I say that change produces transition and transition involves grief and that grief is a result of transition and change because change always involves loss, you might be wondering, well, what kind of losses are you talking about? What do people lose when major change is introduced? Well, let me give you a number of illustrations to help you understand what I mean. First of all, some people can lose comfort or familiarity or a sense of collective memory. For example, when Gateway Seminary was relocating from the Bay Area to Southern California, there was a particular bench that was outside the academic building in Mill Valley, California, that was uh, perched on, a, uh, on a, uh, a, a ridge line that looked out over the bay. And I liked to jokingly say that there were more engagements solemnized on that bench than probably any other bench in the world. It was a breathtaking sight and location uh, to take in the panorama of the San Francisco Bay. When we announced that we were leaving, one of our employees actually painted that bench and the view from that bench in a magnificent uh, painting that we were able to actually secure copies of and give away as gifts. And that bench and that painting symbolized the comfort and familiarity and collective memory that we had of that campus location. 
Uh, we didn't bring much with us from that location in terms of the building itself, but we did take that bench out of the ground and bring it with us as a part of sort of our archival collection here as a memory uh, keeper of what it meant to have once been in that location. Uh, I, I, I've seen this on a number of occasions, but in my first church, we went through a relocation process. And one of the beautiful things that the uh, committee did that designed the interiors of the new facility, meaning the, the carpet colors and the furniture and all of those kinds of things, was they actually took the pulpit furniture from the old building and had it reconditioned and remade in some small ways to turn it into a uh, reception desk and reception seating area in the new building. So that when you came into the new building, you had this very attractive sort of classic looking reception area that the people who had been a member of the church for a long time recognized, oh, that's the furniture from our old building brought forward into the new with a new purpose and new, uh, and new life, so to speak. But it connects us and reminds us to the old. The people who did that had a recognition that people that were leaving the old facility, even though they were moving into a newer, larger, better facility, still had a collective sense of loss about the comfort and the familiarity and the collective memory that went with the old location. So bringing forward just those artifacts was a good method of helping them deal with that loss, which we'll talk more about that in a moment. But for now, just the illustration, that's what I mean by a loss that comes with change, even a positive change like these I've just mentioned, a loss of comfort, familiarity, or collective memory. Here's another loss, a loss of spiritual confidence or of spiritual hope. Uh, this happened when I saw a church's youth pastor leave to go to another church to become the senior pastor. The most upset people in that church were the 11 and 12-year-olds and their parents who had watched this youth pastor develop a remarkable youth ministry program, and they were so excited about moving up that next year or the following year into that youth ministry, and now that youth leader was gone, and they felt a tremendous sense of loss not only relational loss, but a loss of spiritual confidence, knowing that without him leading that program, would there be the kind of spiritual growth and maturity and opportunity that had always been there and that they had looked forward to for years, and they felt that sense of loss. Another loss that comes with major change is a loss of uh, vacations and discretionary spending and other kinds of financial setbacks. I've told this story many times. Uh, uh, as a personal illustration of what this meant to me, I, I was sitting in the balcony at the First Baptist Church of San Francisco several years ago when our pastor uh, stood up and made a very significant announcement about the church making an all-out commitment to its downtown location, and because of that, it had to refurbish its facilities, and he proposed a pretty sweeping renovation of a part of the, of the uh, downtown buildings. And as I sat there listening, I had two thoughts. Number one, he's right. And number two, there goes my vacation. You know, I don't have just a lot of extra money sitting around. Uh, like most of you, I live on a budget. I allocate my income. And, and when I spend it all, it, it's all gone. And so if I allocate some for vacation, well, that's what it gets used for. But when a pastor proposes that he needs large amounts of money to finance a major building project, I know that money's going to come from people like me, and if I'm going to give it, I'm going to have to take it away from something else. And my first thought was, he's right. My second thought was, there goes my vacation. 
and a sense of loss sort of settled on me there. Now, I'm going to say this later in the podcast in a different way, but remember, a person's first response is not their best response or their last response. Now, that first response I made that day was not my best response or my last response, but it was my first response, and my first response was a sense of loss. Well, number four, a loss of wasted knowledge or loss of expertise. I saw this happen with my wife once. Uh, Anne came home from church where she was serving as the preschool director uh, and looked devastated. She, she was, uh, she was uh, uh, washed out in her complexion. Uh, she was listless. Uh, she just came in, put her stuff down, and just sort of sat down in a chair, more, more like collapsed in the chair. And I said, Anne, what, what happened? And she said, after church, we had a leadership meeting, and the pastor said that he wants to have a reevaluation of our curriculum and possibly change our Sunday school curriculum. And I thought, okay, that's normal. It's occasionally good to take a good look at everything you're doing, including your curriculum. And this is what went through my mind. But before I said anything, and I'm so glad I didn't say anything, Ann said, and if that happens, there won't be any place for me. Well, now I realize what was really going on in this conversation. Anne heard the pastor say, we're going to reevaluate the curriculum with the possibility of changing. But what Anne heard was, I've spent 30 years becoming an expert in this curriculum line that the church is currently using. And if they change, where's my place? Will I know how to use the new curriculum? Will I be able to teach and help others learn how to teach it effectively? Will it make any sense to me how it's put together in the organization and educational design that undergird it? Will there be any place for me? And she was feeling a profound sense of loss that day because a change had even been potentially thrust upon her. I have felt some of the same things when I stopped being the chaplain for the San Francisco Giants. I had done that for 10 years. I had developed a, a knowledge base of how to do that job. And while I was not by any means the best baseball chaplain, I, I was a pretty good one and uh, did an adequate job and, and was able to do it for a decade. Well, by the time that ended, I, I felt a profound sense of loss, not only because of the relationships I was losing, but also because I felt like I was walking away with this tremendous information uh, base that I, had, that I had accumulated for how to do the job that I no longer could use, a lost sense of expertise. And then that leads me into number five, and that's a loss of relationships or friendships. I just mentioned that when I gave up the Giants, I lost those relationships and the friendships I had built in that organization. Uh, when we moved to Southern California, we lost the connections we had in our church in San Francisco. When we came here, I watched many other people uh, that moved with us as part of the seminary. I watched their spouses give up jobs, and I watched them move away from grandchildren. And just the relational losses that came with that relocation were profound. And then finally, some people feel a loss of spiritual heritage. Uh, again, I, I've told this story many times, but when I announced the relocation of my first church, as soon as we said the closing prayer for that service, I looked up, and there was a man standing right in front of me. And he said, quite loudly and quite forcefully, I can't believe you're taking my church away from me. And I was dumbfounded. We weren't, in my view, taking anything away from him. We were trying to give people the opportunity to move into a larger facility and expand the ministry of the church and do more than had ever been done ever in the history of our community. 
that's what I thought we were doing, but how he heard it was, you're taking my church from me. Well, God gave me a lot of grace that day, and I didn't react negatively, but a couple of days later, I had a chance to sit down with this man, and I asked him, describe for me why you feel that we're taking your church from you. And then he said, all six of my children were married in that church, and most of my grandchildren were baptized there. And I realized at that point that all of his happy memories of his family's spiritual heritage were tied to this building and this particular location. I also recognized in this particular case that none of his children attended church any longer, anyone's church, and I didn't think any of his grandchildren did either. His only happy memories of a spiritual heritage in his family were tied up in events that happened in that location. He felt a profound sense of lost spiritual heritage by this major change of a relocation that was thrust upon him. So these are five or six illustrations of what I mean. When change happens, it throws people into transition, and that transition involves a grief process because grief is evidence of loss, and change always means loss for someone. Now, it's hard for leaders to remember this sometimes because leaders tend to think of change as everyone wins. We're all going forward. We're going to a new facility. We're going to a new program. We're going to a new approach. We're going to a new methodology. We're going to something that's new and better. Well, that may be how you see it as the leader, but your followers will often perceive major change with a profound sense of loss and their first response. Now, let me be clear to remind you, this is not their best response, and it's not their last response. We're going to talk about that a little later in the podcast. But their first response is to express a profound sense of loss, and that loss leads to expressions of grief. Now, what do these expressions of grief look like in the context of organizational change? Well, Uh, There are many different ways to understand the phases or stages of grief. I've seen it described in five phases, six phases, eight, 13, different numbers. And really, uh, it doesn't make any difference to me which one of those uh, methodologies or which one of those uh, ways of understanding grief that you adopt. We here at the seminary used a six-fold model when we went through our major change of changing locations, and that model served us well. So I'll use it again today. The stages of grief include shock, anger, denial, bargaining, exploration, and adjustment. Now get those down. Shock, anger, denial, bargaining, exploration, and adjustment. Shock, anger, denial, bargaining, exploration, and adjustment. Now what are some examples of what this sounds like? in organizational leadership and in change that takes place in these contexts. Well, shock sounds like this. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe the leaders are proposing this. I can't believe that anyone thinks this is reasonable. Shock. That's what it sounds like. Anger. One person said this to me when I was the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention and we set out to build a new convention uh, facility. He said, our convention doesn't need a new building. It's an ego trip for the leaders. Man, that was painful to hear. There's a lot of anger in that expression. It's an ego trip for the leaders. Just angry expression in response to this major change that had been announced. Denial. 
uh, when we moved the seminary, uh, I, I had a conversation with one person who, who, who said this. He said, uh, now, let me see if I understand, Mr. President, what, what you said today. I said, okay. He said, you announced that the seminary has signed a sale agreement. I said, that's correct. And the closing of that sale agreement hasn't happened yet. I said, no, not yet. And it'll take place in about 60 days. I said, yeah, it's about 60 days. And he smiled and said, so the sale is pending, but it's not final. So it may fall through. And if it does, then we'll know that God wants us to stay here. Well, I said, uh, I suppose that would all be true. But frankly, I wouldn't have made the announcement if I didn't feel fairly certain that it was going to go through. What he was saying to me was denial. Maybe it'll fall through. Maybe we won't have to move. Maybe something will happen that will short-circuit this plan. Maybe we can get out of this in a good, healthy way, and all of us can say that God wanted us to stay. Denial of the reality of what was happening. Bargaining. Another conversation illustrates this. Uh, a few weeks into the process of the relocation of the seminary, one of our faculty members came to me and said, look, I've been thinking about this, and I just really don't, don't want to move. I said, okay. He said, but I'd like to make a proposal to you. I, I'd like to see if we can strike a bargain. He actually used those words. He said, uh, maybe I can live here and commute to where you need me to teach and teach online and in some other ways manage this situation so that I don't have to uproot my family. Well, he was bargaining. He was trying to find a way to mitigate the impact of that relocation in his life. Now, remember I said our first response is not our last response or our best response, and that faculty member is today a very happy and productive faculty member here in Southern California. But in the initial phases of dealing with the sense of loss that he felt as he was going through the transition and managing his grief in response to the major change that had been thrust upon him, he was involved in some bargaining exploration. Exploration is when you start talking about the good that you can see coming from something or the positive aspects of how it may work out for you in the future. Now, I've started raising these kinds of things here at the seminary in terms of exploration about our future. You know, the seminary is living through a profound time of change, just about like everyone else is these days. And we're going through a sense of uh, transition, which involves some grief. We've lost some things during this time of pandemic that we may never get back. Uh, we've had some changes thrust upon us that may become permanent fixtures of how we do our work going forward. And so recently in a meeting, I said, you know, it's, it's, it's important to recognize the, the shock and the anger and the denial. It's important to recognize the bargaining. It's important to recognize the grief process we've been living through. But I want to challenge us to start exploring what the future is really going to look like and asking questions like, what can we learn from the pandemic that will motivate us to be better going into the future? And what can we learn from our response to the pandemic about how we can do our work more effectively going forward? And what can we learn from the pandemic experiences about things that we don't need to go back to, that we just need to say, you know what, that's over. Now we're going to do something different or new or in a more effective way going forward. 
And that spurred an initial conversation of saying, well, we can't make these decisions uh, emotionally or just based on uh, impressions. We need to start gathering some data and looking at some facts and trying to sort out what we're doing. And I smiled at myself because that's exactly what I wanted to have happen as we start exploring the future and what it means to be a healthier school going forward. And then there's finally adjustment. Uh, when we were building the Northwest uh, campus there in the Pacific Northwest a number of years ago, of course, there was the controversy that I've already mentioned. This is just about the leader's ego and some other kinds of things that were said negatively. And, and there were people that didn't want to contribute financially, and they were reluctant to see the convention take these steps, all of that kind of thing. But one of the wise leaders told me, he said, Jeff, stay the course, because someday Every one of these critics will say, oh, I was, I was for it all along. I was for it all along. And I, I have to say that uh, I won't make the claim that every critic changed their mind, but it was interesting to me how over the years uh, so many people changed their minds and said, uh, wow, this really was a good thing, and we really are glad that we did it. Adjustment. They finally embraced the change. So here's what we've said so far. Change produces transition, the spiritual, emotional, and psychological adjustment to change. A part of transition is the grief process because change always includes loss. Anytime there's a change, someone is losing something. And I gave you about six categories of loss that people experience in ministry organizational change. And I've talked about the ways to diagnose or understand the grief process and understand uh, in a sense, these, these six phases that people are living through. Now, let's turn our attention to focusing on how you help people in a pastoral way deal with these major change issues. First of all, remember that people process their losses at different rates and in different ways. These issues that I've been describing are, 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 are stages, are phases, they're not steps. People do not process change, go through transition, or manage their grief, one, two, three, four, five. They're more like a pinball careening from point to point to point as they try to sort out what this all means. Now, every one of you that's done pastoral care in a time of bereavement knows exactly what I'm talking about. People do not grieve in an orderly fashion or in a step-by-step process. People grieve in uh, unpredictable kind of ways that reflect their emotional instability and their emotional uh, adjustment or their emotional dealing with what they're going through at the time. I talked with a person just a couple of days ago. His father had recently passed away from COVID. And I said, how are you doing right now? And he said, honestly, I, I think I'm still in shock. He said, I'm, I'm just dealing with day-to-day what we have to do to get through And he said, I'm not sure when it's really going to hit me. And I said, you know, it may be months before it, quote, really hits you. And I was trying to help him understand that his grief was not going to be necessarily an orderly process, but it may be a very disorderly one over the next several months. Remember that as you're dealing with an organization with large numbers of people going through all kinds of change with you, that their responses are going to be varied, and they're all going to move through it in different ways and different paces. And so you have to be knowledgeable and cognizant of what I'm teaching you today so that you can diagnose in the moment where a person is and deal with them appropriately, not as you deal with everyone else, but just as you would deal with them as they're experiencing the major change, transition, and grief they're going through. And then remember that people may be handling other losses simultaneously, which may compound 
what they're expressing as they relate back to you. For example, uh, in, in the year of 2014, uh, I experienced three profound losses. The first one was in April when I announced that the seminary was moving. Now, I had been processing on this by that time for months. And so for me, the announcement was a time of profound loss. I recognized that we would never get back the seminary that we used to be after I made that announcement that day, and it was a profound sense of loss of what we had and what we were moving away from. A second great loss for me was giving up the role with the San Francisco Giants. I knew that once I announced that I was leaving the Bay Area that I would have to give up the Giants, and I knew that that was going to happen at the end of 2014, and just in God's providence and his care and grace, the Giants won the World Series that year for the third time while I was chaplain. And my last day as chaplain was in the, uh, underneath the stadium in Kansas City at 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, just uh, still there celebrating with players the championship they had won. And not, not in a raucous celebration, but by 1 in the morning, a quiet celebration of just talking with the Christian players particularly about God's care and his providence and the opportunity he had given them and the platform he had extended to them and what they could do with it. A profound time of ministry. But when I walked out of the stadium that night the last time, tears were on my cheeks because I realized I would never, ever do that again. That was in October. And then in December, uh, unexpectedly and uh, suddenly, my mother died. 2014 is my year of great loss. I lost the seminary, I lost the giants, I lost my mom. And all of that compounded in my life. Now listen, when you're dealing with people who are going through major change, that you're thrusting upon them organizationally, you have to understand they're also living through other major changes. They're also going through other transitions and they're dealing with other senses of loss because of what they're living through. They're having relatives pass away. They're having children go off to college. They're having spouses lose jobs. They are experiencing other losses. And in the context of what you're leading them through, you have to also be aware of what else is happening to them because what often happens is the losses that they're experiencing other places seem to crystallize and come out in their expression back to you only about the loss they're experiencing at church. So it takes wisdom and discernment to understand how to relate to a person and minister to them and help them understand that what they're really experiencing is more than just the loss in their ministry context or their church context or their, their organizational context, but it's a compounding of losses in all the areas of their lives that are going on simultaneously. So how do you help people respond? Well, first of all, remember that people process at different times and in different ways. And second, that people may be handling other losses simultaneously, and you have to have the discernment to know how to deal with that as a bundled problem, if you will. And then third, you manage, these, you manage these situations and you help people by remembering that your two primary roles in their lives are pastoral care and disciple-making. Now, pastoral care means that you talk with people pastorally, you share information that I'm sharing with you today in a teaching kind of format. You help them to understand in conversation what's happening to them and how you can apply these principles I'm teaching, maybe in bite-sized nuggets for them, but you help them pastorally. And you recognize that people who are grieving process information poorly and have to hear things over and over, have to help be, to process them repeatedly. You get that. 
And so pastoral care involves talking with people, sharing information, and patiently repeating yourself to help them move through the process. Pastoral care. But your second major response is disciple-making. Now, I've used this phrase before in the podcast. Let me say it again. A person's first response to change, transition, and the grief process, a a person's first response is not their best response, and it's not their last response. Their best response and their last response can be guided, shaped, and uh, and shaped through disciple-making. That's your responsibility as a Christian leader, to do a teaching ministry with them, whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's in a classroom, or whether it's over coffee, to help them understand God's perspective, what God's Word says, and what God's resources are to help them with their change through their transition and to manage their grief in this context. When I was sitting there in the balcony at First Baptist Church and Pastor Ryan said we're going to build a major, uh, we're going to do a major remodeling of our downtown facility and we need a, more than a million dollars just to get started, my first response was, he's right and there goes my vacation. That wasn't my best response and it wasn't my last response. But after hearing him for the next few weeks teach and preach about God's care, God's provision, God's power, about learning to, again, trust God and think about extending myself and in faith believing that God could provide for me, we made a significant financial commitment to that project and a significant financial gift, and God provided. And I grew as a Christian through that experience. I grew as a Christian through that experience. My last response was a response I look back on fondly and say, yes, God did something remarkable through that experience in my life. You see, that's what disciple-making is about. It's not about getting stopped on a person's first response and reacting emotionally or negatively or in a critical way toward them. It's being pastoral. It's having pastoral care and saying, I recognize this is your first response. Change has been thrust upon you. You've been thrown into transition. You're scrambling to make the spiritual, emotional, and psychological adjustment that is transition. And a part of that is you're feeling grief. You've had a great loss in some way that the change is brought about. Yes, ultimately, we believe it'll be for the good. But in the short run, there's a great sense of loss that comes with that change. And I'm here to help you diagnose what's happening to you and recognize that your first response is real and genuine and needs to be dealt with in an emotionally supportive way. That's called pastoral care. But I also am here as your leader to say there's more to think about than just your first response. So through disciple-making, through teaching, preaching, counseling, and that, by that means, I, by that use of the word, I mean counseling together about the Word of God and what it means in our lives, as you teach preach and counsel people about the Word of God and about what God can do through this situation, they start choosing better responses. And so their first response is not their best response or their last response, but as they choose better responses, they come to a place where they really recognize this change is for the good, I can accommodate it, and ultimately God is going to work through this to do something good in my life. Well, change, transition, and the grief process. Having these skills will help you to do a better job of not only leading others through transition and change, but doing the same for yourself as you encounter these difficulties on a personal basis. Put these resources into action as you help people during this time of profound change we're living through, and as you do, you can lead on.